in the house. Aren't we glad to have him here? Yeah, amen. Amen. We miss you. And uh, we're, we're so glad to have you back in the pulpit. He preached most, of, until he went to Lebanon, he preached most of his sermons from this pulpit right here. And uh, that's where he developed that gift the Lord gave him. And it was a beautiful thing uh, to see. Uh, I'll tell you a few things about Matt. He preached his first sermon when he was 18 years old. And he's been preaching now 20 years. He's been in full-time ministry, pastoral ministry, for 16 years. He was here at Gospel for eight and a half years. And now he's been at Lebanon as lead pastor for seven years. And uh, during that period of time, the last seven years, he completed and earned his uh, doctorate degree. So I guess we have to call him Dr. Smith now, I guess. We don't mind calling you that. And, uh, of course, uh, uh, Allison is with him tonight, and that's, that's the most important part of it anyway. And uh, they've been married 15 years, and they have five beautiful children. All five of them are here, and uh, they're beautiful, so you know they, they look like Allison. Uh, and, uh, but we are so glad to have Matt with us today. I've looked forward, Matt. To the time when you would come back and preach for us. So this is kind of a highlight for me. Exciting night. Now some people are so important that it takes two people to introduce them. So second introduction. This was planned so... <laughs> I'm very thankful for the opportunity uh, to uh, introduce Matt for the second time. So uh, it's going to be a great time tonight, and uh, Pastor Paul uh, gave me the opportunity to do this. It's also good to have the, I, I, we forgot to mention the teenagers are in the back here, and we're glad the teenagers are here, Kobe, and uh, got a great group back there. Let's just give them a hand just for being in here. We're thankful they're here. I just happened to look back there and see them, so I didn't even know they were coming in here, so that's great. Um, I'm going to tell you the real reason why I came to gospel. All right, and here it is. As most of you know, as most of you know, I worked for Matt at, at Lebanon for four or five years, and uh, it was back in December of 2022 that enough was enough. And Pastor Paul had called me, and uh, he said, we'd like for you to consider coming over here. And I just wasn't sure about it at that point, but... We walked in as a staff at Lebanon, we walked into Northeast High School. And as we walked into Northeast High School, there was me, Matt, and a couple other staff members. We walked into the guidance counselor's office there, and uh, she was talking to me, and we just started a conversation. And I'm not even sure why we were there, but Matt was over on the other side, and she said, now, let me get this straight. She looked at me, she looked at Matt, she pointed at Matt, and she said, now, is that your father? I said at that point, I'm done. <laughs> it's over. Uh, no, I'm very thankful for Matt and uh, his friendship to me. Not only was he uh, my pastor and my boss for several years, and not only is my brother-in-law, but I consider him one of my best friends. and very thankful for him and his influence over me. And so uh, will you help me welcome Matt tonight as he brings the word for us?
Oh, that's good. That's good. Take your Bibles. Turn to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. The Gospel of Mark chapter 8. Ever since that moment, um, we have only hired older staff members. (laughs) Um, One of the first sermons, I was just thinking about this, one of the first sermons I ever preached here, uh, I made a joke about people being uh, 40 being old, and I just want to say, I've been gone seven years, come back, and I'm still under that age. <laughs> all right? <laughs> yes, yes, all right, that's good. I, I appreciate Pastor Paul and, and everyone invite me to be back. I have such great memories of being here. Uh, I could spend the whole time just reminiscing and talking about uh, the fond memories that I have of the, the eight and a half years of being here on staff and serving as youth pastor and associate pastor and all of that. Truly fond memories, great memories. I, I will just say I was coming at that time. I, the first church I had been in, uh, right out of college, graduating from Piedmont, I'd gone out to a church. I'd been there for about nine months, and it was a disastrous uh, situation. There was a church split um, where they voted out the pastor, and I was not only past youth pastor, their first ministry experience, no idea what I was getting into, but I was also living in the church parsonage as part of my compensation package, and so it was just a really difficult time in my life, and I remember a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of reading through the pastoral epistles, do I really want to do this, you know, and uh, right after that, um, the opportunity here presented itself. I think Dr. Miller and I were talking over at a chapel, after a chapel service at Piedmont, and then Pastor Paul and I got in touch with each other, and Uh, You all extended the opportunity for me to come here, and it's exactly what I needed um, to stay in ministry and uh, to come to a place where there was a good church that loved the Lord and people on staff that loved the Lord. It was just a great place to serve and to work for eight and a half years, and so I appreciate so much of this church and Pastor Paul and Karen and and, uh, all of your investment uh, in my life and in... um, our ministry and leadership calling. I'm going to see if I can advance these slides. I, um, I do notice that there's a little clock up here on the pulpit that was not here the last time, so I don't know if maybe somebody who preaches here now, some, goes too long or something like that. Oh, just this afternoon, yeah. Yeah, that's good. All right, let me see if I can advance these slides. This is what we this is what we were look this is what we looked like when we left here. Uh, just three kids, uh, just the three kids, uh, Isaac, and then on the far right, he's on the left. On the far right is Noah and David in the middle there. And then uh, this is more what we look like now. We've added the two girls to the mix, Leah and Anna. To be honest with you, what was going on was I was looking at those boys and I'm thinking, who in the world's going to take care of us when we get old? And I, you know, I said, we, we better try to have a girl. And so we, we did. And Leah came around and came along and God blessed us with her. And then, you know, I started looking and thinking, wait a minute, though, she's the only girl. She's the baby. She's the, she's spoiled rotten, you know, so a spoiled rotten little girl's not going to grow up to take care of us when we get old. So we better try for one more girl. And uh, that's what we did. And uh, there is, there is Anna, but that's a little look at, at, at our family now. There's a recent trip we, we went on, just a few other pictures of the kids. So Right now is an easy time for us, all right? So when September rolls around, their ages all fall like in sequence. So it's 12, 10, 8, 4, and 2. 12, 10, 8, 4, and 2. Those are the kids' ages now. But just thought you'd like to see that. 
Um, all right, uh, Mark chapter 8 tonight, Mark chapter 8, I, I want to spend some time in this Bible conference dealing with the subject of trusting Jesus for little things, quote, little things. So I want to start with this thought, you know, we, we know God cares about us and provides for us in the big issues of life. Uh, going through really difficult spiritual storms, spiritual supernatural opposition, big issues like disease and death, and big issues like eternal life and salvation. And, and we, we, we find, I believe, we find it a little bit easier sometimes to trust and believe that God cares about us and to trust Him in those big issues in the Christian life, matters of eternity even. But where I think we oftentimes struggle are the little issues. What about the little things necessary for daily life? Sometimes we'll be taking a, um, uh, some prayer requests in a Wednesday night Bible study or something, and, and someone will, will offer a prayer request up, and, and they'll almost be embarrassed, like they think it's too small of a thing to mention. You ever felt that way yourself in your life? Like, is this really a big deal? I mean, this is so small in comparison to what someone else just shared about, or this is really small in comparison to what's going on in the Middle East, or what about the little issues necessary for daily life? D d can we trust Jesus for those? Uh, daily, food even, <laughs> with the way things are going today, even money to buy food. I mean, wow, we just went out to Mario's Pizza a couple weeks ago, and it was like 50 bucks for one cheesesteak and one large pizza. We were rationing. I mean, we're like cutting slices in half, you know what I mean, with all of these kids. It's crazy. But can we trust God for this, for everything else needed for daily life? Sometimes I find it that we struggle in this area. True story, true story, in May 1995, there was a 34-year-old construction worker named Randy Reed. He was doing some final welding on top of a nearly completed water tower in a suburb of Chicago. He was about 110 feet up in the air, and at one point, what Randy did was he unhooked his safety belt for just a moment so he could reach over for some pipes. At that same moment, though, a metal beam nearby slipped off of a crane and bumped into the scaffolding that Randy was standing on, causing the scaffolding to tip, causing him to lose his balance, and 110 feet he fell to the ground. He nearly landed on a pile of rock and construction debris, but he just missed it and landed face down in a pile of dirt. 110 feet he fell. A nearby fellow construction worker saw the whole thing happen, immediately called 911. When the paramedics arrived on the scene, they were shocked to find that Randy was conscious. He was moving, he was breathing, he was only complaining of a sore back. The paramedics took him and they carefully got his body onto a backboard and prepared to transport him to the ambulance to check everything out. And as they were preparing to carry him to the ambulance, Randy had one request, don't drop me. <laughs> don't drop me. Can you imagine? Man falls 110 feet, survives, but worries about a three-foot fall after that. 
You know, I find that's a little bit like us. You know, we trust God for these big things, eternal life. We trust God to save us from hell by the death of Jesus. We trust him to take us safely through death as only a shadow. And, and we have this faith and trust and confidence that God cares for us in these big things. But then we struggle sometimes daily to trust and to believe that he cares for us in the little things. Can we trust Jesus? For the little things. So look at Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. And you're going to need to keep your Bibles open tonight. This being a Bible conference, I thought it'd be good if we look into the Scripture some. And so we're going to be there, all right? So don't turn your Bible, don't close your Bibles. We're going to have them open most of the time tonight. Mark chapter 8, and just we're going to read verses 1 through 21 to kind of get us started here tonight. It says, In those days, the multitude, being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples unto him and saith unto them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I just want to point out there, he's about to feed the 4,000. Earlier in Mark's gospel in chapter 6, he fed the 5,000, what we commonly refer to as the feeding of the 5,000. In that instance, when Jesus fed them, it says that he was moved with compassion towards them because he looked at the people as sheep without a shepherd. It was sort of this spiritual concern that Jesus had for them. But Mark carefully narrates for us the difference here is that Jesus has compassion on them just because they've been with him and don't have anything to eat. Daily bread. And it moved him to compassion. Verse 3, And if I send them away... Fasting to their own houses, they will faint by the way, for divers of them came from afar. And his disciples answered him, From whence can a man satisfy these men with bread here in this wilderness? You might want to just mark that, and that's a really alarming question coming from the disciples after they've witnessed everything they have of Jesus. I just mentioned they witnessed him feeding the 5,000 two chapters earlier. And here they go, how could anyone feed these people with bread out here in this wilderness? In verse 5, he asked them, how many loaves have you? And they said, seven. And he commanded the people to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and he gave thanks and break and gave to his disciples and set before them. And they did set before the people. And they had a few small fishes, and he blessed and commanded to set them also before them. And so they did eat and were filled, and they took up the broken meat that was left, seven baskets. And they that had eaten were about 4,000, and he sent them away. And straightway he entered into a ship with his disciples and came into the parts of Dalmanutha. And the Pharisees came forth and began to question with him, seeking of him a sign from heaven, tempting him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and saith, Why doth this generation seek after a sign? Verily I say unto you, there shall no sign be given unto this generation. And he left them, and he entered into the ship again, departed to the other side. Now the disciples, this is really interesting. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread. <laughs> Neither had they in the ship with them more than one loaf. And he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because of we have no bread. And when Jesus knew it, he saith unto them, Why reason ye because ye have no bread? 
Perceive ye not yet, neither understand? Have ye your heart yet hardened? Having eyes ye see not, and having ears hear ye not? And do you not remember when I break the five loaves among five thousand? How many baskets full of fragments took ye up? They say unto him, Twelve. And when the seven among four thousand, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? And they said, Seven. And he said unto them, How is it that ye do not understand? Pray with me. Father, I ask that you would use this time together as we look into your word, as we consider this passage in the text of Scripture and the Gospel of Mark and the story of Jesus and his interaction with his disciples, as we consider this and we, we ask ourselves, how can this replenish us? How can this scene and interaction, carefully narrated for us by Mark of Jesus with his disciples, how can this replenish our souls and deepen our faith and trust in our Savior Jesus, for the daily things, the little things in life. Equip us to that end, we pray. Encourage us tonight in your word, for your glory and our good, we pray. Until Christ returns, in the name of Christ, amen. All right, so I'm going to come back to this, but I want to give you just a little background about the Gospel of Mark, okay? I've been preaching through the Gospel of Mark at our church for several weeks now, and I am extremely fascinated with the Gospel of Mark. I love uh, this gospel. It's often overlooked. It's usually the one that doesn't get preached on. If some pastor is going, I'm going to preach through a gospel, they usually pick Matthew or Luke or John. Mark seems to be the last choice of all of them. So let me give you just a little background about Mark so you'll understand more of the context, really, of what is going on here. And I'm going to move quickly through some of this, so uh, just bear with me. Uh, Mark is writing to believing Gentiles, this gospel. He's writing to them, especially in Rome, who are faced with growing amounts of suffering and persecution. Uh, Mark has one main message, um, to proclaim the Son of God has come. That's the main message, okay? Mark is, one author said, shouting out a trumpet blast. He's blasting off a trumpet at the beginning, in the middle, and at the end, and at all parts in between. The Son of God has come. The Son of God has come. So that changes everything because God's Son has broken into time, space, and history. The Son of God has come. There are three pillar stories that sort of anchor all of this, one at the beginning, one in the middle, one at the end, that anchor this message about the Son of God, about Jesus coming. You'll notice this, if you will, in Mark chapter 1, on the left there, you have the baptism of Jesus. That happens in Mark chapter 1. What happens there? The heavens are rent, a dove descends, a voice from heaven of the Father, you are my beloved Son, the Father says. John the Baptist is presented there as Elijah. In Mark chapter 9, right in the middle of the gospel, is that transfiguration event where Jesus and three of his disciples, we believe Peter, James, and John, those are the three, they're up there with Jesus on that mountain where what happens? His garments turn white, clouds descend, a voice from the cloud, again the voice of the Father this time, this is my beloved Son, and there Jesus appears with Elijah. And then at the very end, Mark 15, the crucifixion. Notice again the similarities. The temple veil is rent, darkness there spreads. Jesus' great voice calls out from the cross. And this time, 
It is a centurion, but he utters the words, truly this man was the son of God. And there's even the connection. Is he calling? Is Jesus calling for Elijah? So what Mark is doing throughout the book is he's saying the son of God has come. The son of God has come. And that changes everything. Jesus is the unique, the one and only son of God. The question that we are being presented with as we read the gospel of Mark is, will we listen to him? Will we listen to Jesus? Will we hear him? Will we give weight to what he says, priority to what he says above everything else? Will we follow him? Are we following him? What does it really look like to be a disciple of Jesus? Some really unique things about Mark's gospel. Mark is uh, the shortest gospel. I may have some of this out of order, um, so let me get to that point. Um, Mark is the shortest gospel. It's less than two-thirds the length of Luke. There's no nativity account, nor record, no record of his genealogy. Uh, only about 10% of Mark isn't found in the other gospels. Um, Mark, I believe, was the first to be written. There's some debate about that, but for the last 200 years, uh, the best scholarship, in my opinion, points to Mark being the first gospel to be written. And rather than Mark borrowing from Matthew and condensing it, it seems more likely that Matthew expanded upon Mark's writing. Uh, Mark is a book of action. Uh, you'll read the words immediately, or in the King James, you'll read straightway 41 times. It is action-packed. Boom, 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 boom. A lot of things is happening in the Gospel of Mark. Mark gives more space to the miracles of Jesus, proportionally more space to the work of Jesus, the miracle working of Jesus, than any of the other Gospels do. Mark also gives prominence to the human reactions and emotions of Jesus. It talks about his compassion. We notice that. In the text that we've read, his sighing, he sighed very deeply at the remarks of the Pharisees, his indignation, his distress and sorrow, his sweeping gaze, the touch of his hand, his warm interest in children. Mark portrays this emotional life of Jesus unlike any of the other gospel authors do. What is central to this gospel is this idea of understanding the person of Jesus. Mark is saying, as we look at the unfolding message of it, and consider it closely, that discipleship is the proper outcome. Growing as a follower of Jesus, growing as a disciple of Jesus, is the proper outcome of a healthy Christology. Mark's careful to try to spend a lot of time demonstrating to his readers and to us, who Jesus is. You can't follow Jesus properly if you don't have a proper understanding of who he is. And so Mark takes a lot of pain to go through that to preserve for us and to write for us this Christology of Jesus. The Gospel of Mark presents to us three facets of discipleship. You can kind of group it into these three different sections. Discernment of Jesus' person, 1, 1 through 8.21, acceptance of his mission, 8.22 through 10.52, and then faithfulness to his calling, 11.1 uh, through the end of the book. 
more broadly put, I would say it like this, uh, who is a disciple? A disciple of Christ is one who follows Jesus through discerning his person, accepting his mission, and being faithful to his calling on the way to glory, on the way to heaven, even through suffering. But this is what it means to follow Christ. That's what Mark is saying to us, okay? Mark is saying, if you're going to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus, this is what it means. It means following him through discerning his person, accepting his mission, being faithful to his calling, on the way to glory, even through suffering. Okay. A couple more unique things, and we'll get into the text we have. Mark is trying to create in us and those that would read disciples, those who will receive the message and teaching of Christ, follow the example of Christ, and portray that example to the world. One of the ways Mark does this, and this is very important to the text we're looking at tonight, one of the ways Mark does this is he paints the disciples in a more negative light than any of the other gospel authors do. If you read Mark's gospel and you compare the way in which he portrays the disciples, it's more negative than the others. It shows their faults, their failures, their sins, their shortcomings, all of it. And we believe that Mark got his information from Peter. So Peter was right there, close to Jesus, eyewitness of everything. And a lot of those shortcomings and faults and failures come from Peter himself. And yet, he passed those on to Mark, and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Mark recorded those for us. But Mark portrays them not persistently negative, but more negatively than any of the other gospel writers. He commonly presents to us the disciples as failing to understand Jesus' teaching and mission, having hard hearts, and even failing faith associated with cowardice, doubt, and fear. You probably noticed we ended up this section, Mark 8, verse 21, with Jesus making these remarks about them. How is it that ye do not understand? Jesus says of the disciples, they have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. He even describes them as being hard-hearted, and they don't understand. This gospel reminds us of the failure in faithfulness that is not uncharacteristic of disciples. Uh, disciples of Christ... As we follow him, we will not follow him perfectly. We'll make mistakes. We'll mess up. We'll fail. Of course, Mark would know this if you look at the background of the story of Acts when Paul and Silas and Paul and Barnabas were deciding to go on their second missionary journey. And Paul said, I don't want to take Mark with us. That's the guy writing this. And... Uh, he says, I'm going to take Silas, and Barnabas says, I'm going to take Mark with me, and, and Mark was given a second chance. He would know what it means to fail, that it's not uncharacteristic of a follower of Jesus to mess up and to make a mistake and to fail. Peter would certainly know that as he denied Christ, and then Jesus had to go and restore him. Failure is not uncharacteristic in the life of disciples. Mark is saying to us that disciples of Jesus are just ordinary men and women who routinely fail. 
and whose confidence and trust cannot be in themselves, but in Christ Jesus. If you don't hear anything else that I say, at least hear that. Your faith and confidence cannot be in yourself. It has got to be in Jesus. If your faith and confidence is in yourself, you're going to be severely disappointed multiple times throughout life. Okay, one more unique thing, and then we'll get back into the text. I just so many things I could say. So my wife said, don't talk about this, but I've got to talk about this. Mark has this unique literary technique that he uses that nobody else does this. But Mark presents stories to us in what we call sandwich form. There are at least six sandwich stories in Mark. What that means is he begins a story, okay, so this happens six times, where he begins a story, it gets interrupted by a completely different separate story that's totally wrapped up and finishes, and then he comes back to the original story and completes it. So it's a sandwich, all right? I prefer burger, if you will, all right? But you've got the two outer halves of the buns, but what's most important? In a burger, what's the most important? It's not the bread, okay? Now that matters, but the bread's not the most important. What's the most important in a burger? The meat, all right? And so what happens is, in these sandwich stories, I don't know if I have this on here. Do I have this on here? Uh, yeah, yeah, Mark begins a story, introduces a story, and then returns to and completes the other story. Oh, I didn't want to give you those. Okay, so don't, don't, don't have that. Here's the deal. There's six of them. You, that's something you've got to do. You've got to go figure out. You just read through the Gospel of Mark this week. It won't take you a lot of time. And look for those sandwich stories where he begins one story, interrupts it with a separate story, comes back and finishes the original story at the end. One of the most common ones is in chapter 5 where he is interacting with Jairus and Jairus comes to get him to go with him to his home to heal his daughter and they're going to do that and that story gets started but then a woman comes up in the middle of the crowd and touches Jesus and that whole interaction happens where she is healed and Jesus stops and talks to her and then goes to Jairus's house and the first story gets completed with one in the middle. A lot of interesting things going on there. That one's in Mark chapter 5. If you can find the other five sandwich stories in Mark, and you can text those to Nick, he has promised he will, if they're right, he will pay for your whole family to go out to Fleming's right out of his pocket. You can take your whole family to Fleming's. If you go, don't get a burger, okay? You might be thinking burger from this or sandwich. Don't do that. Get a steak, all right? But he'll, he'll, he'll take care of that. But there's at least six sandwich stories in Mark, and it's a really cool, neat thing that he's doing. And the point of those sandwich stories is something unique. The flanking material is measured by what's in the middle, and that's central to the interpretation of what Mark is trying to get at. And every one of those six sandwich stories presents to us a unique facet of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. It's beautiful, really. And it's like, I just love the depth of the Word of God and how beautiful it really is. Well, those are some of my favorite stories in Mark, but what we have in front of us tonight is not a sandwich story. It's not really a sandwich story. I mean, bread features prominently in the story. Eight times we've seen bread, loaf, or loaves in the story that we've read. But the question 
that we are confronted with as we're moving through Mark and as we come here to this chapter, to chapter 8, and we've read about Jesus feeding the 4,000 and his compassion on them because they're hungry and have had nothing to eat. And then as the disciples are fretting, worried, reasoning, what are we going to do? We only got one loaf of bread here in this boat. And we just kind of slap ourselves upside the head and go, what is wrong with these disciples? Are you kidding me? Did you not see Jesus feed the 5,000? And then they asked him, how can we feed these 4,000? And then did you not see him feed the 5,000 and the 4,000? And here you're in the boat and you're going, we only got this one loaf. We're never going to make it, right? <laughs> right? I mean, this is probably like they're hangry at this point, right? Like the hungry and angry kind of thing together. That's what's going on here. But the issue... We read this and we go, is there any hope for these disciples of Jesus? I mean, just like earlier in Mark, in chapter 3, he, well, we won't read it, but it says that he appointed this group to be with him so that he might send them out to preach the gospel and to have authority over like unclean spirits and to cast out demons. In that transfiguration moment, they were struggling down at the bottom of the mountain. The others that were not with Jesus, they couldn't cast out a demon. They, they were struggling. I mean, we're wondering, what, what, what is gonna, how are these disciples going to be able to do this? And we come to this scene, and we go, is there any hope for these disciples of Jesus? I mean, they are not getting it. And if I'm Jesus, I'm a little worried at this point. Wait, this is the group that I've chosen? Like, how, are, how is he going to entrust the entire message of his death, burial, resurrection, of the gospel, of hope, of forgiveness for sins, eternal life, reconciliation to God. How's he going to trust all of that to them? They've seen his miracle-working power, even with the feeding of people, and they're struggling. One author said, the irony of the disciples fretting over the single loaf that they are traveling with in the boat is pungent. The mathematical ratio of one loaf for 12 is a far more plausible proposition than the equation of five loaves for 5,000 or seven loaves for 4,000. I mean, just mathematically, there's a lot greater probability Jesus can solve this issue for the 12 than what he just did previously with the 4,000 and before that with the five. Oh no, the, the, the disciples, look at how they are described here. They are described just plainly for you as being ignorant, forgetful, hard-hearted, blind, and deaf. <laughs> you see what I mean? G, uh, Mark paints them in a pretty negative light. I mean, right here in this one chapter. They're ignorant, forgetful, hard-hearted, blind, and deaf. Is there any hope? They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. They don't get it. They even have hard hearts, Jesus said in verse 17. One of the former managers for the Baltimore Orioles was a guy named Earl Weaver. And he would always get onto the umpires, and there's an interesting story told once of he just he would always let the umpires have it throughout the game. And on this one occasion, the very first pitch of the game was called by the ump strike or something. He thought it was a ball. 
So he said a little something to the umpire. And then the next, the second pitch was called ball, and he thought it was a strike. And after that second pitch, he shouted out from the dugout where everybody could hear to the ump. And he said, is, that as, he says, is this as good as it's going to get? Or are you going to get any better? That's what he said to the umpire. <laughs> I don't know what happened after that. But anyway, that was the statement. Is this as good as it gets? Or are you going to get any better? I mean, we read through this, and we look at the disciples, and we wonder that. Is this as good as it's going to get, or are they going to get any better? Ignorant, forgetful, hard-hearted, blind, deaf? I have to say, we are no better. We are no better than these disciples. See, Mark is presenting them in such a way, he's calling us to consider our following of Jesus. I mean, this is written for practical purposes. We're supposed to see ourselves in the positions of these disciples on the journey with Jesus, on the road, on the way of discipleship. We are to see ourselves right there on the pages of this scene, and we're to look and go, you know what? We're not any better. I mean, how many times have we witnessed the power of God in our lives in many ways? Many times. How many times have we worried over something insignificant? We think many times. I mean, think about this this evening. What are your worries? That might be one of the best questions that people have answers for if they'll speak honestly about. Because we all have things that we're worried about. What are we worried about? What are we fretting over? What's causing you to be like these disciples in the boat? reasoning everything through in your head and wondering if this then that and what most of the time it's these little things that we fret over again Jesus feeding them in the boat with one loaf and only 12 that's very small compared to what he's just done I bet most of the things that you worry about never even happen even more I wonder how many times you worry about something and yet you don't even pray or talk to God about it uh, because you think well this is just too small for him I mean he's got all that stuff going on in the Middle East right now and you know, I always remind people God is um, he, he's omni everything right so like he's omnipresent omniscient omnipotent all these things so he doesn't have to stop from one thing to give attention to another. You know, like he's, he's able to be giving full attention to everything at the same time. So like there's nothing that you're going through tonight that's insignificant to Jesus. And here's the beauty of this gospel and how the question gets answered for us. Is there any hope for these disciples who are blind and deaf? Consequently, is there any hope for us? Mark doesn't leave us to guess. He doesn't even leave us to simply go back and say, well, yeah, there is because Jesus has compassion on the multitude. That's significant for us to understand. He has compassion on them because they're hungry. It shows us that Jesus cares for our daily provisions and needs. But even more than that, Look at what happens in Mark chapter 7. See, this scene that we've just read about is bookended, not by the same story, but by two different miracles. 
Look at the miracle that happens in Mark 7 right before this. Mark 7, verse 31 through 37. And again, departing from the coasts of Tyre and Sidon, he came into the Sea of Galilee through the midst of the coasts of the Decapolis. And they bring unto him one that was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. And they beseech him to put his hand upon him. And he took him aside from the multitude and he put his fingers into his ears and he spit and touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and, and saith unto him, Ephphathah. That is, be opened. And straightway his ears were opened, and the string of his tongue was loosed, and he spake plain. And he, that's Jesus, charged them that they should tell no man, but the more he charged them, so much the more a great deal they published it. And were beyond measure astonished, saying, He hath done all things well. Notice this. He maketh both the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. Now look at the miracle that happens right after Mark 8, 21. Starting in verse 22. This time it says, He cometh to Bethsaida. And they bring a blind man unto him. Are you catching this? How are the disciples being portrayed and described for us in the passage that we looked at first? They're being described and portrayed as blind and deaf. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. What has Jesus do just done? He healed a deaf man, opened his ears. What is he about to do? He's about to heal a blind man, open his eyes. Verse 23, he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands upon him, he asked him if he saw aught, if he saw anything. And he looked up and he said, I see men as trees walking after that he put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up and he was restored and he saw every man clearly and Jesus sent him away to the house saying neither go into the town nor tell it to any in the town even more remarkable even more remarkable in this scene is a two-stage miracle this is the only two-step miracle Jesus performs. Like, he touches the guy and asks him if he can see, and it's like it doesn't completely heal his eyesight. He can see, but not very clearly. And we go, what did, I mean, I don't know how, did Jesus shake his hands? I mean, what did he do? Like, did, did, did Jesus not, was he not quite capable of doing it the first time? Or was he, he, did he heal this man in two stages intentionally? And did Mark narrate it for us in his gospel for us intentionally? And the answer is, I believe, yes and Yes, like these disciples and like us, we oftentimes are hard-hearted, we are deaf, we have ears but we do not hear, we have eyes but we do not see, and even sometimes our sight in following Jesus, we can sort of see what he is up to, but not completely and fully. It takes time, it takes a progression is there any hope for these disciples and consequently for us in our following of Jesus? And the answer is yes, <laughs> there is hope. They are blind and deaf, but there's hope because their teacher is Jesus and he is able to heal deaf ears and open blind eyes. 
The deaf man, by the way, was also mute, and the disciples, they were not only deaf, but also unable to speak properly or appropriately. You, some of the comments that they make here in the chapter that we read in, verses, in chapter 8, verses 1 through 21, are very thoughtless and careless and faithless. I mean, how can anybody feed these people out here? You know, they just kind of misspeak even, and Jesus is going to correct all of that as well. Christ's method of healing... And the way that this is preserved for us shows us that there is hope for the disciples and consequently there is hope for us in our following of Jesus because we follow the one that even when we cannot hear and even when we cannot see and even when we're just like these disciples who fail to have faith and trust in him and we worry and we fret over little things when we have no reason to, we're following the one that can fix all of that. And his name is Jesus. Not only can he do that, but he's the only one who can. He's the only one who can provide for all of our daily needs, and he will. Because don't forget, he is full of compassion for his people. He is full of compassion for his people. When I read through this gospel and I look at these disciples and and I just scratch my head sometimes at their failures I look also in the mirror and I go boy I'd hate for my life and my following of Jesus and the intimate thoughts and worries and struggles and things in my walk with the Lord that I deal with that I struggle with. I'd hate for those to be written and preserved in a gospel for everyone to be reading and I I go, you know, I'm no different than them. I'm, I'm no better than them at all. None of us are. We follow Jesus, but we make mistakes and we struggle in our faith and we worry. We sweat the small stuff. Even though we know there's a book by that title, don't sweat the small stuff. We still do it sometimes. We doubt him. We fail to trust I just ask you this evening, as you think about this text and you think about your own life, what is it that's causing you worry? What are you worrying about tonight? That maybe a year from now, you, you'll look back on it and you'll shake your head. You know, how was I worried about that then? What issues are causing you to be blinded to the provision that Jesus has for you or to be unable to hear God's voice saying to you tonight from this text, I have compassion for you. I care for you. I really do. I, I will meet your needs. You're trusting me to take you to heaven. You're trusting me for eternal life. You're, you're trusting me for all of these spiritual things, but trust me for this thing that you think is so insignificant. Bring that to me. Listen to Jesus. That's what the Father said at the Mountain of Transfiguration when those three disciples, Peter, James, and John, they saw the glory of Jesus. And, and Peter said, we need to build some monuments here and commemorate this. And, and the Father had to speak over Peter and say, this is my beloved Son. And then he said, listen to him. Listen. 
you might be hearing all kinds of things, other people telling you stuff, speaking into your life, you may be reading stuff, you may be consuming all these other messages that are just causing you more worry, more fear, more anxiety, more stress and turmoil. But God the Father says, Shh, listen to him. Listen to Jesus. I love the 1882 hymn, "'Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus." "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus,' verse 1 says, "'just to take him at his word, "'just to rest upon his promise, "'just to know, thus saith the Lord.'" And then the chorus says, "'Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him, o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. But then that last line says, it's a prayer. <laughs> oh, for grace to trust him more. If there's one thing I want you to do with this message tonight, is to just simply pray that prayer. Lord, give me grace to trust Jesus more. Just give me grace to trust him more. Father, thank you, Lord, for this time together tonight in your word and for how it is powerful and how it is alive and how it can, can cut right into our heart, how the depths of it are un unable even for us to, to get to the bottom of all that is going on in your beautiful word and even something that we may have read a hundred times or more before we can come back to and it can it can lay us open and reveal to us our the intents of our thoughts and our heart and it can show us where we fall short father my prayer is for for everyone here tonight who's heard these words and everyone who will hear this that that we will pray that prayer of trusting in Jesus that we will see that you are a God of compassion, that Jesus is a God of compassion, and that we will believe that. And, and even as we struggle like these disciples in our following, they kept following him. But even as we struggle in that, and our hearts are hard at times, and our faith is weak at times, and our sight is blind, and our ears are, and our hearing dull, May we put our confidence, not in ourselves, but in Jesus, because he is the one who's capable to open our deaf ears and to open our blinded eyes. Give us grace, Lord, we pray, just to trust Jesus more. This is what we ask for, for your glory and for our good. In Jesus, we do pray. Amen. <laughs>